Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 16. <clears throat> Mark chapter 16. Let's begin in verse 1. <clears throat> it says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will ro- roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, as we proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, Father, may we tremble, may we be seized by the reality of the cross and the resurrection. Father, may we too be astonished at this event this reality. May we be seized by it as well for your glory and our good. Amen. We've been asking this question for the past number of weeks in this series, a question of what is the gospel? How do we define the gospel and how do we then react or respond to the gospel? Kind of three dangerous alternatives or dangerous ways of responding to the gospel that we've slowly been talking about is, uh, I would give three here, and I'm sure there's more, but for our purposes, three kind of broad approaches to the gospel. One is (coughs) the ease (coughs) of relegating the gospel to simply a set of ideas or propositions. It is certainly a set of ideas, it's set, certainly a set of propositions, but is the gospel something to be relegated as just simply that? Or on the, maybe the flip side of this is maybe the gospel for you is some sort of emotional, experiential trip that isn't driven by any well-considered, thought-out ideas and propositions. or maybe a third, again, broad category for some of us. Maybe the gospel has something to do with Jesus. Maybe it has something to do with the cross. Maybe even something to do with evil and good. We don't 
know if I understand much more than that. What is the gospel? Today I want to continue another problem that we've been talking about is as we think about what is the gospel, if, if the gospel is anything other than a biblically rich and whole understanding as we are shooting for, as we are aiming at, then the gospel becomes simply something you and I can take or leave. Something we can put aside for a moment or for a time. Kind of like, we've, we've talked about like this when it, as it relates to the church. If the church is something I go to, then it's not something that transforms me tomorrow. But if the church is something I am, then I cannot take that or leave that. It goes with me everywhere I go. And for many of us, we treat the church this way because we treat the gospel this way. Because the good news of Christ is something that we can take or leave. The gospel is little more than some ideas that I can think upon every once in a while, usually when I need to or I am desperate to. Or, on the other hand, again, the gospel is just some sort of emotional high that comes and goes. It's here for a moment and it's gone the next. The last week we talked about how the most we talked about pivotal moments in history, and particularly the cross being the most pivotal moment in all of history, especially for followers of Christ. That all of history is changed in a moment on the cross. And that for Christ and His followers, for us, our every move Every breath, every affection must flow to and from the cross. It is the center of our personhood, the center of our existence. Everything we say, do, think, feel should flow to and from the cross. It flows to and from at the center. It is, in other words, It should be our master. It should master us. It should captivate us. It should be what we think upon, dwell upon. It should be what drives the way we work, the way we respond to our co-workers, the way we take our tests, the way we treat other people. Everything. The most pivotal moment in history for the world and certainly for Christ's followers. Well now, as we think about the cross as the most pivotal moment in all of history, then where does the resurrection fit into this picture? I would argue, and and in part, it's not the main point for today, but in part want to argue that if the cross is the most pivotal moment in all of history, then the resurrection is the linchpin of this pivotal moment. The resurrection is the pin that the pivoting motion pivots upon. It's kind of like the hinge. Here is the, the, the cross pivoting back and forth, and it's this pin inside that 
it rests upon, that it pivots upon. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then this pivotal moment means nothing. If he is not raised from the dead, if he is not brought to life, then this moment of the cross means nothing more than any other religious event in history. And so, if the linchpin in the gospel is the resurrection, then it too affects everything that we live for. Indeed, it must affect everything that we live for. So the question for us today, really, and where we're going, is this. How are you responding to the resurrection? How are you responding to the resurrection? So yes, in a sense, how will you respond to the resurrection today? But I ask this question this way specifically, because we should be responding to the resurrection in everything. The way you got up this morning, with the first breaths that we took, the way you dealt with Saturday, the way you worked or studied this past week. How are you responding to the resurrection? The linchpin of the gospel. How are you responding to it? What differences, what difference is it making in your life? What transformation is it causing? How often does it enter your thought life? How much joy does it spur in your heart? Is it the treasure that you hold? Indeed, is it the treasure that holds you remember and and more on this in a bit but jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be also so the question is is are you treasuring the resurrection if not then your heart is not where christ is now let's back up in the story just a little bit and walk into this resurrection scene at the tomb. Mark 9, verse 31, very briefly. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus prophesying or proclaiming his future death and his future resurrection i mean so think about this is days ahead and jesus is teaching the people around him one day i will be killed but i will raise again three days later you see what we see here early on in mark 9 is the revelation of the resurrection the resurrection is being revealed if you will here well ahead of time Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. Many of his friends and family were greatly disturbed by these predictions. Go back and read the Gospels. Peter even tried to tell Jesus that he shouldn't talk this way. But Jesus never wavered in his predictions. He was convinced that this was going to happen. That God would do this to atone for our sins. Go back and read passages like Isaiah 53, 
Genesis 22, Psalm 16, Jonah 1, chapter 7, uh, verse 17, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. All of these Old Testament passages predicting that Jesus would be raised from the dead. These were the passages that informed Christ of his future death and resurrection. And he trusted what the scriptures, what God had said to him through the scriptures. He trusted them and he predicted them. He owned these predictions himself. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's my personal conviction. I don't think that the Spirit just dropped the ideas of death and resurrection into Jesus' mind. <clears throat> I think the Spirit could have. <clears throat> but Jesus was a man of the Word. He was a man who studied the Scriptures. Him dying and raising again was not a new idea. It was from the words of old contained in the Old Testament. I can only imagine the day that he is probably in the temple studying the Old Testament and comes across passages like Isaiah 53 and at that moment the Spirit saying, that's you. We not only have this kind of pre-revelation of the resurrection, but also the reality of the resurrection. There's many who deny the reality of the resurrection, either explicitly or implicitly with the way we live our lives. There is the reality of the resurrection, and we have to deal with it. Again, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the linchpin of the gospel, if it didn't happen, then it all falls apart. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What's he saying? The whole gospel. If he doesn't raise, if God did not raise him from the dead, then the rest of it is worthless. It's a waste of time. In fact, he goes on in that passage to say that we are to be the most pitied of all people. I hope you're seeing like the importance of the resurrection. And if it's that important, it cannot be something we think about every once in a while. Again, Paul tells us that if it's not true, we're to be pitied. That at least implies that the resurrection is not something you can just theologically take or leave. It also means that the resurrection is not something you can daily, practically take or leave. It must be a part of the governing rule in our lives, our emotions, etc., You see, when the ladies arrive at the tomb, the passage tells us they were shocked. Why were they shocked? Because they didn't expect him to be alive. Why, why do they go buy the spices and the, the ritual burial things that they're going to bring to take care of his body? Because they walked to the tomb with doubt that Jesus actually meant what he said. 
He, was, he taught them. This was, he didn't just say this in verse 31 of 9. It happened multiple times where he predicts his death, and yet they walk to the tomb ready to take care of his body and to wrap him up, to, to put spices on him as if he was still dead. They didn't believe what he said. They doubted the resurrection. Indeed, they weren't just wondering. They were prepared to live as though he was still in the grave. But they come, and he's not. Right? The big stone had been rolled away. And in there, a man saying, he's not here. Just as he said. And then he instructs them to go share the news with the disciples. Go read chapters like Luke chapter 24. You'll even see that the disciples were skeptical. No way. No way. I mean, they'd lived with this guy for three years. They'd seen him forgive sins and heal people with paralysis. They had seen him raise broken bodies off the beds to walk again. They seen him do all these things and yet when the tomb is empty as proclaimed by these ladies no way there was doubt but listen if the resurrection is the linchpin of the most pivotal moment in history then again the question I pose to you again is how are you responding to the resurrection how are you responding to the resurrection every moment Every day, every situation. Particularly, I would point you to the mundane moments of life. How are you responding in those moments to the resurrection? First thing I want you to consider here is don't respond as though it isn't true if you haven't considered. If you haven't thoroughly considered. Like, this is foolish. There are many people, I'm sure there are people in this room, there are people that we work with, we go to school with, that we live next to, that respond as though the resurrection isn't true and haven't thoroughly considered it. This is foolish. It's absolutely foolish. It's like believing the earth is flat without actually studying it. The reality is, is again, many of our friends, co-workers, even I'm sure some of us in this room do one of two things. We either consider briefly the resurrection and then dismiss it as a fable, or two, we might be okay with it happening, or like, oh yeah, that's fine, whatever, but haven't thought through the implications, the demands it now makes. You see, the first person is denying its reality explicitly, but the second person is functionally doing the same. Encouragement to you as we think about this passage in the resurrection is that if it is true and you believe it to be so, then we must proclaim it because it is a matter of life or death both to us and to those around us. Those around us can either be raised again into new life just like Jesus or they can pass on into eternal death and separation from God. 
It is a life or death matter. And if we understand, if, if the resurrection is such that we're talking about today, this pivotal moment, this linchpin of this most pivotal moment, then the people we work with just as we do, the people we go to school with or that we live next to must do something with the resurrection. This happened. You have to do something with it. Without getting into a bunch of apologetics here, did you know that the New Testament is the most historically reliable document from the ancient world. Dr. Aiken said this, the New Testament is the most well-authenticated document of antiquity, a fact no textual critic of any theological persuasion would deny. More than 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament exist. These are of an earlier date and of a more reliable nature than those of any other work of antiquity. And it speaks to the reality of the resurrection. It speaks to the witnesses who saw Jesus resurrected, who saw the empty tomb. And if it's the most pivotal moment in history then these people, us included, must do something with it. If the resurrection is true, then it means that these other realities, namely the cross, namely His righteous life, His claims to be God, that these are true as well, and they must be dealt with. Again, think about this when you're engaging your coworkers this week, your friends, your lost relatives even. We must do something with the reliable historicity of the resurrection. Now here's the reality for probably most of us in this room. That you can believe in the resurrection and not treasure the resurrection. And it makes all the difference in the world not just for this life, but the next as well. You and I could believe, could mentally assent, could affirm even publicly that the resurrection is true. We could sing songs about it, raise our hands to it, recite it even to our children, our neighbors and co-workers, and not treasure the resurrection. And my fear is that many of us believe it, but don't treasure it. One does not truly believe the resurrection if it doesn't mean the world to you. I love that phrase in uh, one of the songs we sang this, this morning that, that let all my loss show me that all I truly have is you. Listen, the, the resurrection affirms that all we truly have is him. Why? Because he defeated the ultimate enemy, death. Death can come to anything else. He defeated death. And if he defeated death, and we will be raised to defeat death too, 
and everything else can pass, then all I truly have is you. But if we do not treasure the resurrection, if it doesn't mean the world to us, then we don't really believe it. It's, it's just a proposition that we've mentally agreed to. I think this is all over the church. It's in our church as well. Many people who are supposedly committed to Christ even outwardly look like it in many ways, but have never really considered what the resurrection says or demands. We believe the event is true, but with very little meaning. Again, the resurrection to many of us is simply another proposition that I must mentally agree with in order to get my ticket to heaven. I'm going to go out on a limb here and burst your bubble, but you didn't get a ticket to heaven by mentally agreeing with the resurrection. Satan certainly mentally agrees with the resurrection of Jesus. You were not sold a ticket to heaven by a simple mental agreement to a proposition. What you were sold was a ticket to hell in an envelope labeled Christian talk. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, where is our hearts? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does it mean to treasure something? This thing we treasure becomes our governing thought. It changes the way we think, the way we feel. It captivates us. It masters you. That's what Jesus means when he says, there your heart will be also. Think about passages like, well, Jesus, what does the law come down to? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's he saying? That's where your heart's got to be. That's where our heart has got to be. And Jesus is saying here, whatever you treasure, that's where your heart will be. So again, let me ask you this question. Could it be possible that you mentally believe that Jesus died and even was resurrected, but not treasure that reality? To not stake your life upon it. To not make every decision in light of it. To not have your affections driven by it. And I would contend, yes, we could be this kind of people that agree with something and yet not believe it in our hearts for if we treasure it it would be something we would stake our life upon it why do you think we shrivel back from 
uh, doing the things that we're supposed to do? Or why is it so hard to overcome sins? It's because we're treasuring something. We've not staked our life upon the resurrection, the assurance, the guarantee of the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, we stake our lives upon whatever good I might be able to acquire for myself at the outcome of this sinful endeavor. It could be that we are a people who believe in the resurrection and yet not treasure it. And so, think about it this way, if I could wrap this part up with a bow. If your treasure or your heart is not in Christ and Him crucified and resurrected, and this resurrected Savior is in heaven, then where is your heart slash treasure? Where is it at? could be in a myriad of other things. But Jesus says to store up your treasures where? With Him in heaven. Church, listen, if the resurrection does not spark our affections and govern our thoughts and move our feet and hands to action, then we must ask the question, do I really believe the gospel? You see, if we treasure the resurrection, then we will be dead to the world and alive to Christ. If we treasure the resurrection, this will be the effect. This will be the outcome. Now, first of all, the resurrection first implies death, right? We can't have a resurrection if the person is not first dead. Galatians 6.14 says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, I want you to focus on this part, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. <clears throat> now very quickly, if you were at the, the Good Friday service that we had a couple days ago, we taught through some of this passage, but here, much more briefly, the problem for humanity is that because we have claimed to be sufficient apart from God, to be more glorious ultimately than God, more worthy of worship than He is. And that, when we look elsewhere, that is what we are elsewhere for worship than God. That's what we are saying. And because of this, the answer to our problem, to this transgression, is death. We must die because of this. Blood must be shed for our sin against God. But that is the marvelous news that we celebrate this time of year, particularly two nights ago. Is that Christ came and died the death that we deserve. He paid the price for our sins, namely, enduring the wrath of God for eternity through separation and forsakenness. He endures the payment that we should have paid for our sins. And He died that death in our place. And when we believe by faith, that becomes a reality in our lives. He atoned for our sins. Justice was given to Jesus. Grace and mercy is extended to us. Given to us. But now look at what Paul says in this passage. When I boast in this reality, what I just described, this cross reality. When I boast in this reality, the world is like a dead corpse to me, and I am like a dead corpse to the world. 
that we will be dead to the world and alive to Christ. Or in the end of 6.14, he says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When something is crucified, what is it? It is marred. It is broken. It is, <clears throat> it is forsaken. It's not something to look upon. It is death in process for the world to see. What Paul is saying is that I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. But then look at, uh, maybe in another way, the sweet aroma of worldly pleasure now lands on my nose like a rotting stench. I'm dead to the world and the world is dead to me. But then you put this with a passage like Romans 6.11 where Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reality is that this only happens when you and I treasure, when we boast in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Alive to God in Christ. Paul is saying, what once was a sweet aroma, the world, is now a vomit-inducing stench. What was once a vomit-inducing stench, namely the glory of our Creator, is now a life-giving aroma. He, now, Christ, now, is the one whom we live and breathe for the idea of this being alive to God. Think, think the Jesus dead, now alive. Us dying with Christ, now alive to God. The world is dead to us. God is now alive to us, or we're alive to God, rather. If we treasure the resurrection then we will be dead. If we treasure the raising of Jesus unto new life, then we will treasure our raising to new life. But sadly, here's the way we go about our days, right? We know Jesus said, I will raise again in these days. But then we, just like the ladies at the tomb, go looking in doubt. We walk from A to B to C to D with our spices prepared to ritually be thankful for the death of Jesus. And in many ways, we must be thankful for the death of Christ. Absolutely. But the story doesn't stop there. And you and I live much of the time as though the story stops there. The ladies believe the story stopped there. But Jesus had told them, after three days I will rise. But we live our lives doubting what God has said. And so we look to everything else, everything else for hope, hope for tomorrow, hope to make it through this meeting, hope for our parenting, hope for our friendships, hope for our eternity. But listen, 
Listen, look at the story. What happens when they realized, when they realized that what he said was true. When they walked in and they go, oh my goodness, he said this. He said he would raise from the grave. Look what happens to these people. They ran. They were trembling, it says. It says they were astonished. And what does Mark say? They were trembling and astonished. And what had happened? It had seized them. It had grabbed a hold of them. It wasn't something they did. It wasn't something they mustered up. It wasn't something they created. It was the reality of Jesus' words being true had seized their entire being. And they run. They ran to tell the disciples because something had captivated them. Something had control of them. Something changed the way they thought, felt, acted. They were ruled by something else. I mean, think about others. It's not the only example. Think about others. Think about the disciples. From cowards before the cross to courageous men of God after they saw Jesus resurrected. Think about Paul. From murderer, after he realized Jesus was still alive, right? The road to Damascus. That's what he realizes. Jesus is who he said he is. He goes from murderer to church planter, Bible author, pastor. Changed the world. You see, again, we spend all our waking moments captivated by something. Maybe it's the prospect of getting that next task done. So I'm captivated by that. So I arrange everything to get that one task done. Or we make other people wait or direct them such that we can get that task done. Or, and no one better get in my way. Or maybe I live captivated by the hopes of rest and peacefulness. Or maybe it's the dream of others seeing us in a certain way, so we embellish stories. Or, or maybe we make sure to tell people that, you know, we got this, and we're good, and we want people to think a certain way about us, and we live captivated by all these sorts of things. But the resurrection is a part of the gospel. It's the linchpin of Christianity. And if it's the linchpin of Christianity, then it must be the linchpin of your day. Every day. Every moment, everything in your day rises and falls for the glory of God on the linchpin of the resurrection. So the question is this, what are you captivated by? What are you responding to? How are you responding to the resurrection? Or are you simply responding to other things? Whatever you're captivated by or astonished by, seized by, that is the linchpin of your day. That is what everything is flowing to and flowing from. Everything is oriented around that thing. Think about it this way. What, what's, what, when you have nothing guiding your thoughts, nothing like provoking your thoughts, what naturally comes out? What comes out? 
that's probably a good insight into the linchpin of your day. I want to give you three wonders of the resurrection. Three wonders of the resurrection. I want to reach beyond this passage just for these few moments. Three wonders of the resurrection. Listen, hang with me for a second. You and I live, all of us live every single day knowing the guilt we have and experiencing the shame of it. All of us. We, we know, even those who don't know Christ as their Savior, know that we are not holy like our Creator. Even those, again, who don't believe in God know to some measure that they are not what they should be. And they may try to cover it up. We, tr- we try to cover it up. We try to deal with it in all these ways. But we do that because we know something is wrong. We know it. You and I know it. We know there is f- the filth of mud caked all over us. We see it in things like our envy, or our coveting, in our anger, in our bitterness, oftentimes our depression, and so on and so on. That's why we try to grab a hold of parts of the law that we feel like we can succeed at. Like that we can sit up on, so we, we can say, look, I've done this, I have I, I might be messed up over here, but this part of the law I got, and I can sit on top of that. I'm successful, and this somehow balances out this, or maybe the grandeur that comes from our pride in the moment at least blinds us for the moment from the reality of our sin over here. That's why we try to compare ourselves to other people. That's why we run from things like rebuke and admonition or community and accountability It's because deep down, by God's grace, we know that we don't measure up. Something is wrong. But listen, we have a much greater treasure to hold in our hands than what anything in this world could offer us. These things we must behold. We must boast in these things. Ask the Spirit to give us affections to cherish these things. The first one is this. Since He has been raised from the grave, our justification is sure. Since He has been raised from the grave, our justification is sure. His resurrection means His payment for our sins was enough. It was sufficient. Tomorrow, you don't have to go try to earn His grace as if you could anyways. It's already yours. It's already yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's grace is yours. Because our justification is sure because the resurrection says it is. Or He's going to be good to you tomorrow in everything. You don't have to doubt that. 
All his wrath due to you was paid on Jesus in a justifying endeavor for your sins. And the resurrection says it was good. If our justification is sure, then that means that the trial is over. It's done. It's finished. The resurrection says the courtroom has been dismissed. The judge has said the penalty has been served. Those who have believed, those who have treasured Christ as their sacrifice, the penalty has been served. You and I are not just free to go. It's not that the sins are just overlooked. The sins have been dealt with, paid for. We have been justified. And now the judge doesn't just say, you can walk out of the courtroom. Now the judge says, you're welcomed in my chambers as my friend. Indeed, you're welcomed in my chambers as my adopted children. Our standing before the Father is not something that can be shaken or revoked. It is more certain than the sun rising tomorrow morning. Resurrection says our justification is sure. Second, since he was raised from the grave, you and I have been raised. Those who are in Christ have been given new life. Back to the Galatians passage. The natural world as such has ceased to have any claims on us. Death has no claim on us. The world has no power on us if the cross and the resurrection are treasured in our hearts and minds. You have died in Christ and been raised to new life. And number three. Since he was raised from the grave, you and I will be raised on the last day. You and I will be raised on the last day. Those found in Christ will be raised on the last day. Right? That sin, that brokenness that renders us deserving of death and hell, it has been paid for and accepted. And Jesus was just the firstborn of those who will be resurrected. He had victory over death. He conquered death. And because of him, you and I will cheat death as well. One day we will be raised to eternal life. Listen, the resurrection is the crowning moment in Christ's work of atonement. It is the crowning moment in Christ's work of atonement. You go to passages like Ephesians 1 and such, and you see that Christ is exalted and 
Everything is being brought about to make Him as the point of it all. The resurrection is another part of that purpose. It is the moment where, if you will, the crown of, is placed upon His head and He's walking in victory over the grave and sin. But not only is it the crowning moment in Christ's work of atonement, it is the crowning moment in our salvation as well. Think about what will happen one day. In our resurrection, we will finally get to behold His face, right? We will get to see His face, to behold His face. And what will happen in that moment? We will be like He is. We will be changed in a moment. Sin no more. Why? Because in that moment, in our resurrection, where we see His face, our hearts and minds will be completely seized and trembling with astonishment. We shall see His face. Because He was raised, so shall those who are found in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and the chance to celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, may we, in this moment, may we see the things in our lives that we treasure, that we love, that we're captivated by, that has our astonishment written all over it. Father, may we May we see those things. May we repent of those things, confess them to you. May, may you lead us to treasure the only true treasure, and that is your son, Jesus. To treasure the reality of the cross and the event of the resurrection. I give us the hearts to to see this and to believe it, to trust it, to know it, to live by it. To be captivated by it. Father, help us to understand that the gospel requires much more than just a mental agreement, but there must be the reality of a heart that is changed. Father, we also understand that we cannot change our hearts. We cannot make this treasuring happen. You must. We are utterly dependent on you to change our hearts. That we would forsake these other things that we treasure. So that we might store up our treasures in heaven with the resurrected Savior. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, give us faith to believe such things this morning. Father, if there is anyone here that has not trusted, believed in their heart and their mind that you sent Jesus to die for them, to pay the price for their sins and live the righteous life they could not live, and that you raised him from the grave, 
Oh, may you give them a heart to believe this morning. We ask all these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.